Do you, Baron Frankenstein, take this woman to be your bride? Do you promise to haunt her with old horror movies, toys, and comics? Yes, I want friend. Woman. Friend. And you, Baroness, do you take this man beast to be your lawfully bound husband? Do you promise to endure hours of unimaginable torture as he rambles about monster movies and long-dead actors? Close enough. Then by the power invested in me by Count Alucard, I now pronounce you supermates. supermates. You may bite or kiss the bride. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. I'm Chris. I'm Cindy. And we are going to start off our House of Frankenstein series. We're going to be talking about classic horror movies and comic books featuring your favorite superheroes clashing with classic monsters. Since this show is obviously called Supermates, it's a husband and wife geek cast. What better movie to start out with than Bride of Frankenstein? This is true. So that's a favorite of ours. Of course, you can't talk about classic horror movies without talking about Universal. Uh, Universal created the horror movie, more or less, as we know it. Of those movies, most people agree Bride of Frankenstein is kind of the, the high water mark of all those. I mean, Dracula is great in its own merits. Frankenstein's great. I'm particularly fond of The Wolfman. But Bride of Frankenstein, that's the one almost everybody goes to and says, that's it. So we thought that'd be a great place to start. And so without rambling too much further, we're just going to jump right into it. You make man like me? No. Woman. Friend for you. Woman. Friend. Yes. I want friend like me. I think you can be very useful. And you will add a little force to the argument, if necessary. Do you know who Henry Frankenstein is? And who you are? Yes, I know. Made me from dead. I love dead. Hate living. You're wise in your generation. We must have a long talk. And then I have an important call to make. Frankenstein was released on April 22nd, 1935, and was directed by James Well. That's kind of odd that they released this movie in April. Well, you know, if you really look at it, a lot of horror movies that you would assume were released around Halloween mm -hmm. were not. I mean, they just they just weren't. I mean, it. I think they, I don't know, maybe the connection uh, to, from especially these monsters, to Halloween came later through lots of merchandising and well stuff. yeah i guess so. i mean we we kind of associate those characters with halloween now especially versions that are if not exactly the universal version are similar to the universal right. version like dracula's got a widow's peak and a collared cape right. and frankenstein's got a flat head bolt somewhere whether it's in his neck or his head to try to not get sued by universal they you know still evoke those images James Well had directed the original Frankenstein, which also starred Boris Karloff and Colin Clive, who returned in this movie as the monster and Dr. Henry Frankenstein, respectively. It was such a hit that the, a sequel was announced immediately, initially called The Return of Frankenstein. Well was reluctant to return. I guess he didn't want to get pigeonholed in the horror genre, but uh, I guess Universal just kept begging him to do it, and, and he ended up with a lot of creative freedom which resulted in the movie having a very unique flavor. I mean, it's a mix of horror, camp, comedy. It's it's just a it's it's an interesting it's an interesting film. I mean, it's 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 not a straightforward horror movie by any means. And uh under a lesser director, it might have just been a mess. Obviously, he knew what he was doing. So, Derek and Cook hosts a uh, a great show called Monster Kid Radio, which I'm a fan of. 
he actually brought up, uh, he was talking about uh, Bride of Frankenstein, and he actually mentioned, uh, he, he likened Bride of Frankenstein and James Well to the way that Tim Burton uh, was with Batman Returns. Uh, Tim Burton had a big success, success with Batman, so on Batman Returns, they kind of just let him loose. And then you ended up with a much more Burton-esque movie right. than the first Batman. The difference is... This works. This works. <laughs> right. Hey, I said it. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we'll uh, jump straight into the synopsis. You want to handle that? Okay. The film opens in a dark castle besieged by a violent lightning storm. But this is not the castle of Frankenstein. It's the current home of Lord Byron and his friends Percy and Mary Shelley. Lord Byron marvels at the storm and of demure Mary's ability to spin the tale of Frankenstein. Byron, with lots of tongue rolling, good night Irene, <laughs> recalls the tale and Mary tells him the story didn't end there. As she continues her yarn, the sh scene shifts to the burning windmill where we last saw Dr. Henry Frankenstein and his creature. There, the villagers watch as the last embers burn out with the young Baron Frankenstein presumed dead. The Frankenstein? Frankenstein. I've watched apparently. Frankenstein. Is, this, is it Frodrick? Yeah. Frodrick Frankenstein. Shut up. I've watched that a little too many times. Oh, anyway. My name is Frankenstein. Okay, go ahead. Ooh, you'll pay for that later. Okay. The monster still lives and murders an old couple who stayed at the rubble to verify his death. He then startles the excitable Minnie, the housemaid to the Frankensteins, who runs off to tell her tale of terror. When she returns to Castle Frankenstein, <laughs> no one believes her. The entire village is consumed with grief over the young Baron's apparent death. But Henry Frankenstein stirs to life in the waiting arms of his bride-to-be, Elizabeth. Sometime later, Henry is visited by his old college professor, the devilish Dr. Septimus Pretorius. Yes, Septimus Pretorius. Thank you. Pretorius knows of his former pupil's experiments and wishes to collaborate. Henry is reluctant at first, wishing to leave his nightmares behind. But Pretor... I cannot say that. Dr. Pretorius! Dr. Pretorius <laughs> has too succeeded in creating life, and Henry must see his handiwork. When Henry sees it, Pretorius's lab boggles the mind. Tiny living creatures with distinct personalities living in jars. Just like sea monkeys. Pretorius proposes that the two work, to work together to create a woman. Meanwhile, the monster is hounded by villagers through the forest. He is eventually captured and briefly imprisoned before breaking free and wrecking even more havoc and taking more lives. Wounded and tired, the monster finds refuge in the hut of a kindly blind hermit, who not only tends to his needs, but also teaches him to speak. Their happy coexistence is interrupted by two hunters who recognize the monster. In the resulting melee, the hut burns, the blind man is taken away, and the monster is once again alone. Fleeing more angry villagers, the creature hides in a crypt where he finds Dr. Pretorius and his two assistants harvesting parts for his experiments. Hoping to find another friend, the monster approaches Pretorius, who tells him his new gruesome friend, who tells his new gruesome friend of plans to make him a companion. The monster is pleased, and Pretorius now has new leverage to assure Henry Frankenstein's aid. The two pay a call on Henry, who is reluctant as ever to help a new monster. He is persuaded when the monster abducts Elizabeth. Pretorius claims she will go unharmed if Henry agrees to his collaboration. With little choice in the matter, he relents, and soon Frankenstein's old laboratory is alight with energy and strange sounds once more. Although Pretorius has created a living but dormant brain, the heart they have on hand is useless. Pretorius sends his assistant Carl out for a fresh one, but Henry would be aghast to learn how fresh it is, coming from a newly murdered woman done at the hands of Carl. With the new heart working perfectly, at last the time has come to give their assembled body life. While Frankenstein and Pretorius harness the lightning, the impatient monster repays Carl's murderous ways by throwing him from atop the castle. An anxious Frankenstein and Pretorius discover their creation is alive. 
The newly born creature seems stunned as she begins to take in the world around her. For the enamored monster, it's love at first sight, but his bride-to-be rejects him with a horrifying scream. Disillusioned, the rampaging monster makes his way to a large lever on the wall, just as Elizabeth makes her way to the tower, having escaped her cave imprisonment. Warned that the lever could blow them all to atoms, the monster tells his creator to go so that he may live while he, his bride, and Pretorius pay for all their sins. Pulling down the lever, the lab explodes and the remnants crumble to the ground while a horrified but relieved Henry and Elizabeth look on. Very good. Except uh, for I don't know how to say Frankenstein. <laughs> and Pretorius. <laughs> Dr. Pretorius! <laughs> Uh, so, uh, as this movie starts out, uh, in the, one, it's very funny because you see in the time between the first Frankenstein movie, unknown actor Boris Karloff has become Karloff. Yeah. One name, or Karloff the Uncanny sometimes, but here he's Karloff as the monster. And, uh, in the original movie, he actually went uncredited as the monster in the beginning and was only given that credit at the end. Here, uh, because uh, Elsa Lanchester plays Mary Shelley right. and the bride, she is credited as Shelley, but the mo- the monster's bride, or the monster's mate, I think is her official title, is just left with a question mark at the beginning and the end. So they don't even tell you at the end it's her, but I mean, you kind of have to be kind of silly not to figure that out. But um, So as the movie starts out, you get this great, you get the first hint of this great score by uh, Franz Waxman, which the earlier Universal movies just had just little spot, uh, you know, just a little just a little hint of music at the very opening. It was usually a classical piece like Swan Lake or something. Uh, and so, so this with this one, you really I think it's one thing that helps this film. It makes it feel more modern because it, it like the monster he has a theme. And the bride has a theme, and Doctor Pretorius has a theme. So it's it's like a you know it's like a it's like a more like a modern movie you would you would watch, and it's it really does you know help tell the story. Uh, and the monsters theme must have influenced the score of the Incredible Hulk TV show um, because it's very similar. You get a dun 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 dun, dun mm-hmm. you know, and and then the Hulk you go dun 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 dun, you know. And it's very similar. It's like the monster's just quicker. Some people, I think on one of the DVDs, I heard uh, a film historian said it almost sounded like the monster's growling. You know, it's kind of like that same kind of mimicky sound. But it it makes sense that they would copy that for the Hulk because both Stanley and Jack Kirby have said that uh, the Hulk was an influence. I mean, the Frankenstein, particularly the Universal one, was an influence on the Hulk. And, uh, in fact, the Aurora model kit sales apparently influenced the creation of the Hulk. I mean, it was popular, you know. Yeah. The, frankly, the monster craze was on, you know. And uh, so they combined elements of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Frankenstein and created the Hulk. Uh, it's funny, too, and we're still talking about the credits, but James Wells, obviously, like Karloff, his, uh, his fortunes have, uh, uh, you know, obviously increased and his name means a lot more now than it did with the first film because his name comes up on the screen you get this like sting of music like you know it's like name like pops up so uh, yeah you already mentioned when you get to the scene with the Shelleys and Byron that uh, the uh, Gavin Gordon that played Lord Byron he man he like <laughs> I'm glad you did that because I cannot do that He's rolling his R's all over the place. And it's like... I mean, like, I was like, Dad, go! I was like... You know, like... <laughs> I, I was going to make a comment about they always said Lord Byron was popular with the ladies. Maybe that explains why. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> this just went to the explicit rating on iTunes. Uh, <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, it's kind of interesting, too, because uh, throughout the film, there are references to religion. He's starting with Byron saying that, you know, like God's shooting lightning at him because he's, a, you know, London's greatest center or Europe's greatest center, whatever it is, however he quite puts it. Uh, but, uh, and then, and then Mary says, you know, her story was like a cautionary tale about man mm-hmm. trying not to emulate God 
but uh, you know, then there's other parts in the movie where Wells seems to be kind of jabbing religion. And especially through Pretorius, because he says, like, you know, if you believe your Bible stories and things like that, you right, know, I mean, so right. it's, it's really interesting. It's like this interesting back and forth. And you get to the uh, to the uh, to the hermit and uh, they actually, you know, when the monster and the, the hermit are comforting each other, which is just we'll get to that later. It's a very touching scene. It's very completely sincere scene in this movie that has a lot of, you know, fun and camp and black humor and stuff like that it actually even closes in on a crucifix as it pans away from that I mean that scene goes black so it's there's some interesting subtext thought, yeah. yeah going on in there uh, so Byron flashes back to events in the previous film and it's interesting because most of those scenes in the previous film were not in the novel The Frankenstein no, no. And, and most of this isn't either um, but like anytime anytime that um a novel is adapted for film in any medium. Things are taken away and things are added in because you do not have a window into the character's mind. Yeah. So you've got to add the director sometimes for good reasons and sometimes for, you're like, why on earth did they not put that in? Especially, I myself as a librarian, if you, if you read a book and then you see the film adaptation, I mean, very, 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 very few times is the film adaptation any better. There's, you know, usually it just does not translate as well. Right. I, however, I have, I'll be honest, I have not read the original Frankenstein because it's just hard to wade through. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it, it, unabridged. And I just, I mean, it's just one of those things and I'm just like, meh. You know. It, it is. And, and, and I'll be honest, I, I have recently in recent years attempted to to read it i think i read it years ago uh but i think i i, I pretty well skimmed it then right, right. i mean i read it but i didn't read every word because it is rather difficult to read the style it's written in and i think partially too because we have the expectations of the universal frankenstein mm -hmm. and it's it's quite different and it it and because you don't get that you're like it's kind of unsatisfying because the universal version, for better or worse, and in my opinion, better, has basically supplanted the novel. Right. right. Uh, you know, into the you know, if it doesn't contain the elements from the, this movie, then it just doesn't seem right. And uh, you know, in the case with you know, you can't talk about Dracula. I mean, Frankenstein without mentioning Dracula, uh, because they've both been adapted. Dracula, I think, more than Frankenstein, but. Both, you know, were the first two universal horror movies of the modern talkie, talking era and everything. But uh, Dracula, of course, was altered as well by Universal, but through that the stage play. Uh, but even though they mix characters around and stuff, it's still, there's more there from the novel, I think, than Frankenstein. And uh, so I, I think when you read in Dracula, although it came uh, probably about 70, 80 years later, as far as publishing, it, uh, it, it even though it's still been over a hundred years ago, it reads more as a contemporary book. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's written in the the characters' journals and things, but it's just a lot easier and a more exciting read. And I actually would like to see a film that really faithfully adapts that. Bram Stoker's Dracula came close, but then they had to add all that mushy junk in it. <laughs> Dracula's an evil bastard. There's, in the book, he's an evil bastard. He's not going to sit in a restaurant and cry in his, with his bat face. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's get back to what we were talking about. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, actually, according to things I've read, the scenes with uh, the Shelleys and Byron were cut, were cut, partially cut from the film. There was, there was more filmed of those scenes, but they cut it back because the Breen office, which was the censorship office in Hollywood at the time, that would soon put quite a kibosh on horror movies for a few years, they actually objected to the amount of cleavage that Elsa Lanchester Lanchester is showing in this. It's ridiculous. Some, Here, let's have the monster rampage and kill and blah, 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 but we're worried about showing a little bit of tit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> 
It can. The monster can push an old woman into a into into what's left of a windmill into the water and have her body bounce off the gears. But by golly, do not show any muffin tops. All right. <laughs> we are getting raw tonight. We are. Telling you. That's where I'm fun. At the, so at the side of the burning windmill, we meet Minnie, who's housemaid of the Frankensteins, as portrayed by actress Una O'Connor. Now Una O'Connor is notoriously divisive among Universal Monster fans. You either love her or hate her. A lot of people hate her because they figure she's just a she's way too broad. She's just the comedy character dropped in the middle of this horror movie. She's shrieky. She's you know she was in the in Wales the Invisible Man as well. But there's there's no denying that, you know, she was comic relief and also She's the Greek chorus in this tragedy. She's the one that announces characters and brings up, you know, what's going to happen next. And, I mean, she's that's basically, she's there at almost every point in the film. It's and, like she turns the page. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Henry Frankenstein is presumed dead at the beginning of the film by the villagers. And, in fact, in the original ending to the, the first movie as filmed, he did die. But before the movie was released, they had a change of heart. And had uh, they ha actually have a scene where you see Henry uh, resting in his room with Elizabeth Byam as his father, who's not seen in this movie, this sequel, only mentioned, talks to the maids in, in the house. And Although apparently Colin Clive and the actress that played Elizabeth in the first movie aren't actually in that scene, it's doubles. Doubles. Yeah, but Henry Frankenstein lived at the end of this, even though they kind of act like that scene that was kind of questioned in the beginning of this one. Right. So we first, you know, the when we first see the monster in the, you know, in the water underneath the the remnants of the uh, windmill. the windmill, it's a really great shot. I mean, it's creepy. I mean, you know, even today it looks it's just so shadowy, shadowy and well well shot. And Karloff's makeup um, was altered. Of course, it was uh, created by the the father of Universal Monsters, Jack P. Pierce, uh, who created all the the looks for the Universal Monsters. He did a really great job of modifying his makeup. He had, uh, you know, his hair was singed off, and he had burned scars on his yeah. face. And, and uh, you know, like, like some people, like Rick Baker, even on the DVDs of Rick Baker, of course, great special effects makeup artist, commented how uh, Karloff had filled out a little bit. He wasn't quite as cadaverous right, because he, right. his lifestyle had gotten better. I mean, still, obviously. Yeah, but he wasn't a starving actor. Right. Still, so, you know. Yeah, he, he, he filled out a little bit, but uh, uh, he wasn't quite as um, uh, dead looking in, in this film. He really, that you know, but still he looked great. And this time, he, <laughs> lucky for him, um, Pierce had uh, managed to uh, come up with a rubber headpiece for him so he didn't have to build up his his flat top head every time with yeah, that uh, nasty, uh, apparently that very corrosive substance called uh, collodion and, and cotton, which, you know, I guess, I think uh, Karloff said he had scars from that, you know, for the rest of his life from the original life, makeup. Yeah. yeah. So it's another interesting thing. Not only is Henry Frankenstein a uh, grave robber, he's a cradle robber too. Because I saw, I read that when I was reading the Universal Monsters book, you know, Valerie Hudson, who plays Elizabeth, she was only 17 in this movie. Yeah. So, you know, she ain't legal, folks. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's different in the village of Frankenstein, maybe. Oh, okay. you know. Uh, so we get to meet Dr. Pretorius in a very dramatic scene. You know, many opens the door, and his face is, like, freaking scary. And he's played by Ernest Thessinger. Ernest, I can't say that. Ernest, Thessinger, Ernest Thessinger, mm -hmm. who was uh, director James Wells' drama mentor. And uh, it took me a while before I made the connection, but I'm like, I, when I saw Bride of Frankenstein for the first time as an adult, I'm like, I know that guy from something else. Right, and, and right. It, he's the Undertaker in my favorite version of A Christmas Carol, 1951 Scrooge with Alistair Sim. Right, right. And he's in several scenes that are pretty important in that movie. Still kicking in 1951, even though he looks ancient in this movie <laughs> in 1934 or five or whatever. <laughs> So many films historians think that uh, Pretorius' seduction of Henry, stealing him away from his wife on the eve of his wedding, is uh, can be seen as a gay metaphor. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, since Whale and Thessinger were both openly gay, even back then, which is pretty, you know, I guess it was Hollywood, but, you know, it's kind of unheard of really right, in a way, right. but they both apparently were. 
it's you can kind of see it, you know. <laughs> so and well, I always took it to you know the way I saw that whole relationship was, hey, I can give you all this power. You can have power over life. Oh, you know, power over life and death. Right. And it's Faustian too. Yeah, yeah. I, it's one of those things. This great here have all of this power, but you have to come to me to my dark side. And, right. You know that's. Yeah, it's mess. He's you know he's very mess- Mephistopheles. He's the devil. I mean, he's tempting him. You know, and right? So, you know, they go to the Pretorius's lab, and you see the part that always kind of freaks me out a little bit: the little critters in the jars, the, the little the king and the queen, yeah, and the mermaid like, and the devil and the archbishop and the ballerina. And I just, I, I'm sorry, but I'm just kind of what? I mean, <laughs> that that part that part. I mean, they're neat, and I think they're cool to look at, but I'm just like... The effects are great. Oh, yeah. It's the guy, the Fulton, John P. Fulton, I think, the guy that did the effects for the Invisible Man movies. But regardless, it's one of those things that I'm like, that's really cool, but I just don't see how it relates with this particular... I don't know. It's just kind of... It's almost like, why do you need Henry Frankenstein if he's doing that? He said it's because of scale. He can't get the scale right or something, but... I mean, I mean, I'm gonna think we're overthinking this, <laughs> but, yeah, but but it is it is almost a bit too much. It's almost like that could have been its own movie of itself. What he did, kind of like a the Island of Doctor Moreau, is what I kind of took it as. Yeah, you know that was. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, you know, we get uh, the monster. We finally get back to the monster, and uh, he's. Uh, at first, we see him uh, trying to save this girl that's fallen into the... Well, he startles this shepherd girl, and she falls into this pond, and he actually pulls her out and saves her. And, you know, she starts freaking out and screaming when she sees him, and then some hunters come up, and they shoot him. And and then it's it's interesting because when he's... Before that scene, he's, he's walking through this idyllic forest with these beautiful trees, and the music's playing. It's all very nice, and you know, very pleasant scene. And then later they're chasing him through a forest. The villagers are chasing him through a forest. And I've seen it described as it looks like it's just nothing but telephone poles. There's no limbs. There's no life on it. It's just like these giant poles that he's running through. So it really, it really, you know, and the music is very, you know, it's, it's, it's relentless and just beating and jarring and jarring. And and you feel for the monster. They, they, they catch him. They crucify him. I mean, there's another, there's another uh, uh, religious scene. That's I mean, that's just beating you right over the head. I mean, they 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 put him on a pole and he's up in the air for a minute before they throw him in the wagon. Of course, then they take him and take him into town. And we didn't really mention the Burgermeister in this movie. He's a pretty funny guy. And him and Minnie have uh, some. A nice back and forth. They actually tell I can't me. help but I hear the Burgermeister and it automatically, the year without a Santa Claus runs through my head every time. Uh, that's Santa Claus is coming to town. Yeah, Santa Claus is coming to town. Yeah, the Burgermeister, Meister Burger. Burger. I can't help it. Every time I hear it, I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway, you know, they, they chain him up and of course he breaks loose and starts wreaking havoc again. He eventually makes his way to the, the hermit. And the hermit's hut and the sound of the music, you know, brings him in. And as we said, the 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 scenes with those two are really touching. I mean, you know, if they if if they just somebody just left well enough alone and let him live there with that guy, none of this would ever happen. Yeah. You know, none of the rest of this movie would have ever happened. But just you know, just like somebody again back to the Hulk, if people just leave the Hulk alone, <laughs> just quit bothering him, let him live out in the woods somewhere, everything'd be all right. The, the 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 only bad part is is like you said earlier with the Frankenstein or the the part in Bright and Young Frankenstein with the Hermit who's played by Gene Hackman yes is so great and funny that it almost kind of ruins this scene because it's so it's not shot for shot but it's you know that that's the send up of this scene yes and it's probably the most direct send up. Of that whole movie. Of that whole movie. The, you know, they take parts and elements from all these different, the you know, Frankenstein, Bride, Son, and, and mix them together mm-hmm. in Young Frankenstein. But this one's almost exactly it. And you just can't help but see Peter Boyle and, you know, he's lighting a cigar and he lights his thumb on fire and he cracks his, 
he puts the soup in his lap and they crack the mugs together and it breaks and you know you just can't help but see it and it kind of it kind of undercuts takes you out of it takes yeah. you out of it a little bit because I mean, it's such a great part oh, yeah you know it's so sincere or like other parts of this movie kind of wink wink a little snarky but that you know that's just completely sincere actually the actor one of the actors that comes in one of the hunt, hunters that comes in is played by uh, John Carradine. Hmm. He'll go on to have, you know, a pretty uh, good career with Universal playing Dracula in a couple movies and also, you know, spawning a bunch of other actors, the, the Carradine clan. So you, we meet Dwight Fry's character of Carl, and uh, Dwight Fry had played um, Fritz in the first film, the hunchback assistant that the monster kills. He also played Renfield in uh, Dracula and kind of stole some scenes in that film. There was originally a subplot with Carl committing murders that were pinned on the monster, and it kind of makes you wonder if some of the some of the murders that are that happened, especially in the village after the monster breaks out of the prison, were originally attributed to Carl, like they that little girl that they find and things that seem. I mean, obviously the monster seems to kind of go back and forth between you know just kill him. But he doesn't seem like he kills unless somebody's, like, coming right at him. Right, right. Uh, except for the old woman he kind of threw her in. But, you know, but uh, so it makes you kind of, I always, uh, and I really don't know that. But it, it but it makes, I like to think it, you know, just so you can think better of the monster. Because <laughs> I kind of like to root for him, you know. But, uh, so the monster's inner, the monster is eventually, after he's driven away from the, the blind man's hut, he goes to, uh, hides in the crypt. And there he meets Pretorius, and that's yeah. a really cool scene. You know, with lots of great lines. Some I've also read that some film historians uh, equate the monster in this film with a rebellious teenager. Uh, you know, uh, in the first films, the he was you know the the child, and now he's in his teen years, and you know he's rebelling against his parents. He's hanging out with a bad crowd, and he's now he's all of a sudden discovered women. You know, <laughs> well, <my laughs> <man>. yeah. So <laughs> when the monster comes with Pretorius to um, Frankenstein's home, there's a great bit. If you've seen the first movie, uh, he tells him to shut down. You know, well, that's exactly the first thing that Henry Frankenstein told the monster did to do in the first movie. Mm, okay. So there's a nice little callback. Very subtle. If you hadn't seen the first movie, you wouldn't even get it. And speaking of sitting down, Colin Clive apparently broke his leg prior to filming. So if you notice, he sits down a whole lot in this movie. I mean, he's in bed uh, when Pretorius first comes. He's in a chair at Pretorius's lab. Uh, when they come back, uh, with, when he comes back with the monster, he's in a chair. When they're in the lab... When he's working on the heart and everything later on, he's in a chair. So that's how they got around him having a broken leg, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> you think Elizabeth would know to keep her window locked because, although it was played by a different actress, the same character had her window broken into by the monster in the first movie when he's chasing her around the room yeah. in her wedding. And he goes, row, row, you know? <laughs> so they tell they need a fresh heart and... And, uh, so I think Carl, you know, Carl goes out and it just shows a really quick scene of him waiting in an alleyway and he just, you know, basically puts a bag over this lady head and, and, uh, I think it would have played a lot better had they left that subplot in, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's fine. I mean, you get the idea this guy will do anything. He was in there grave robbing and right. he, he joked about, it's like, next time let's just let him hang us because he didn't want to be in the grave, you know, <laughs> anymore, but. His line is of "It was a very fresh one." Was uh, is is actually pretty funny, slightly disturbing. Uh -huh. <laughs> so we first see the bride, and she's you know wrapped up in bandages all over, uh, more so even than the the original monster was in the first movie. Which is kind of weird, considering that you know she doesn't have that many scars, you know, and she's wrapped up in all these bandages and. Well, I don't know. I mean, you only really see her head when they finally reveal, so you don't really know how many scars she's got on her because she's still got bandages all over her. Well, that's true. That's true. So I don't, I don't know, but uh, I think it, they said the, they didn't really have a good idea of what she's supposed to look like. The, I think the, the the script said something about uh, you know in this part she looked like a mummy. So I guess you know having they having made the mummy with Karloff already, uh, maybe Jack Pierce decided, okay, well. 
if she's supposed to be a mummy, let's make her look like Nefertiti. So they gave her the hair that goes straight back and up. (laughs) The tornado hair, basically. Frankenstein and Pretorius, there's some great shots of their faces when the, you know, when the lightning's going off and all the, 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 the Carl, the Kenneth Strickfraden, the Kenneth Strickfraden, sorry, Kenneth Strickfraden's electrical equipment's, you know, sparking and, and you get all these great, you know, uplit shots of, of, of Henry Frankenstein and Dr. Pretorius. And, and I think, uh, I don't think Jack Pierce ever made a scarier looking face than Dr. Pretorius. That's, that's all I'm going to say. The bride's makeup is, it's very Hollywood glamour. She's got the, you know, dark lipstick and, right. and, uh, you know, she's very, you know, just very of the time attractive, but she's just, you know, just got the nasty scars around her ear and, and, and jawline. Um, and then, of course, the the white streak in her hair, and they, they actually achieved her hair by taking her actual, Elsa Lanchester's actual hair and brushing it over, like, a wire cage they had attached to her head. Mm. And uh, and I, I've read, I only read this in one place, but supposedly they had her eyelids, like, taped open, I guess kind of like um, Chaney Sr. did with the Phantom, maybe. So that gave her that... Wide-eyed stare that she has, that, that iconic blank stare. I love it when Fessinger uh, uh, Hammingly says, The Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, you know, plays the, right. plays the wedding bells. It's just the great scene. So, uh, you know, her, her screen time is really Oh, she's short. only on screen, you know. Maybe five minutes. Yeah, maybe. Uh, at the like last five minutes of the movie, here she is. But it's just so... But her look is so, it has captured the imagination. I mean, there's all this stuff that has her image on it and glamorized yeah. and, you know, all, I mean, yeah. you know, based on five minutes, five, ten minutes of screen time. Yeah. I mean, well, in a way, it's kind of like, you know, Karloff is a mummy in the actual mummy wrappings. He's in the movie for even less time than she is. Hmm. You know, the way she moves her head around. I mean, she looks like somebody that's just been born full scale, you know. I mean, that's, who's probably got slightly addled mine. <laughs> the monster, when the monster comes in, the, ch- the the changing emotions, you know, as he finds he finds love and then loses it immediately. I mean, Karloff does a fantastic job with that part. But, I mean, I think, I mean, you have to realize that Frankenstein's monster, he's thinking, oh, she'll immediately fall in love with me and everything else, but... At the same time, and I mean, this is just me overthinking things as usual. Mm-hmm. But you know, you have to give somebody time. Oh wait, I just have gotten rewoken from death. Here, give me five minutes to catch my breath, then we'll snuggle. Okay. <laughs> well, their first date on the love seat is uh, it's both hilarious and heart wrenching because she pulls her arm away as he sits down beside her, and and then the monster, you know, of course, when he goes to 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 pet her arm, and she screeches at him. It's just in, you know, his line, she hate me like others. You know, that just, it, it sums up the monster in a nutshell. You know, wanting love and acceptance, but never getting it. And as a result, going on a mindless rampage afterwards. I mean, that's that's him, you know. And then there's the lever of doom. Not that lever. Don't touch the lever. Well, I mean, it's kind of, it just puts me in mind of Doofenshmirtz and Phineas and Ferb. He always has a self-destruct button on it. Why do you put those? There. Don't touch my lever and nader and nader or something. Yeah, I mean, I'm just like, what? <laughs> so, yeah, why have a lever set up to blow the whole lab? Maybe, maybe if they had a line in there about, you know, we must have, you know, in case the villagers come, we don't want them finding out about it. these are experiments are ours and and this knowledge is ours alone and we'll we'll blow this place to atoms if they come near it and you know that that would have probably taken care of it you know if if pretorius had some kind of self destruct thing in there and henry frankenstein didn't know about it or something but again it's the whole thing like Doofenshmirtz. why do i keep putting yeah, i can't use his voice but why do i keep putting this on, on my anators you know <laughs> yeah good point but <laughs> the same kind of lever sorry it's a lever same kind of lever shows up in later frankenstein films so Apparently, they do not learn their lesson. Yeah, it comes in a, it's like the Acme, you know, destruction lever. It's like the Wally Coyote orders or something. Yeah, the I, I do think the monster's awfully charitable to Henry Frankenstein at the end. You know, he's obviously saw that Henry and Elizabeth had the kind of love that he longed for. 
but it, it's still kind of surprising that he let him golf that easy because, you know, Frankenstein, you know, I know he was he was kind of dragged into it this time, but, you know, he still had some comeuppance coming, in my opinion. Uh, he's a bad man pajama. But, uh, you know, he originally was slated to die in this movie. If you look, when the lab explodes, there's this long shot overhead. You see Colin Cliver is double standing up against the wall. Henry Frankenstein's in that shot. Apparently, while they decided to change the end of the movie, they didn't want to go back and reshoot that. So it's there. He's in that scene, even though you see him going down the road, you know, away from the tower as it as it crumbles in on itself. The bride's closing hiss was said to come from swans that Lanchester observed in a park that her and her husband, Charles Lawton, the actor Charles Lawton, used to frequent. So... Apparently, when you try to approach a swan, when they try to approach swans, it would make that sound that you can do. Yeah, that. <laughs> so, but uh, just a great film. You know, I mean, what I, you know, what more can be said for it? It's a classic, and it deserves to be. So we had a lot of fun watching it mm-hmm. and talking about it. So we're going to take a break, and uh, when we come back, we are going to talk about Superman number three forty four, which features both Frankenstein's monster and Dracula. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. Powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Up. Oh, and away. Atomic batteries. Turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. And we're back. I can't say that as good as Andrew Leyland. And we're back. I can't do that. So anyway. <laughs> so we're talking about Superman number 344 from February 1980. And I looked that up on Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which is the website everybody goes to to find out when comics came out and all that stuff. It was actually released in early November instead of October. So they missed it by, like, a few weeks for Halloween. That's just weird. I, I don't know if there was a scheduling snafu or or what, but this just seems odd. Uh, the story is titled The Monsters Among Us. The cover is by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise, Praise be his, his name. name. I got you doing it now. Good. <laughs> Still don't understand why, but okay. Yeah, uh, And it's awesome. But anyway, which I stole that from... Uh, Dinner for Geeks, but and we've been doing it around the house all the time. But anyway, the uh, we'll get back to the cover later. Paul Evitz was the scripter from a story by Lynn Wein, Kurt Swan, and Frank Chiaramonte. Cher- Cher- I always say that wrong. Were the artists. Glennis Wein was the colorist. Ben Oda the letterer, and Julia Schwartz editor. So are Glennis Wein and Lynn Wein related? They were husband and wife at the time. I think they are no longer. Gotcha. I think her. Maiden name and future name is Glennis Oliver, if I remember right. After stopping a violent electrical storm, Superman heads to Castle Camlin on the outskirts of Metropolis. There is Clark Kent. He joins his co-worker, Lois Lane, and attends a seance to summon the spirit of renowned mystic Roland Randall. Blind medium Cassandra Kraft manages to make contact with Roland, but through her he warns they have interrupted him from holding something horrible back from our world. Cassandra faints, and Clark notices the storm has somehow returned. The storm seems to contain two figures swirling in the clouds. 
Feigning this is all too much for him, Clark switches to Superman to investigate. While he is away, the castle is attacked by Dracula and the Frankenstein monster, who are after Cassandra. If they destroy her, the door they escape from will remain closed. Superman returns in time to save Cassandra and Lois, but Dracula vows that he will return to claim Cassandra before disappearing into mist, along with the monster. Superman pledges to protect Cassandra, but warns her of his vulnerability to magic. Spying on them while in bat form, Dracula overhears this and plans to add Superman's invulnerability to his own dark powers. Day breaks and other seance attendees beg off while Lois agrees to stay with Cassandra. Superman will keep an eye on her from afar and wait for the monster's return at nightfall. While attending a WGBS meeting later that day, Clark Kent spies the Frankenstein monster causing a ruckus downtown. Distracting his co-workers by sucking the oxygen out of the boardroom. Oh, that's... <laughs> we'll, no, get back... we'll get back to that. Okay. Clark takes off and engages the modern Prometheus as Superman. The Man of Steel manages to subdue the brute, but the beast gets away, while Superman ponders just how to defeat his mystical foes. He spots a common child's balloon and asks to borrow it. He then flies off toward the castle and is showdown with the nightmarish duo. The macabre menaces do not disappoint and show up on schedule when night returns. Well, that's nice of him. Yeah. Superman barely manages to escape Dracula's fangs and finally subdues the patchwork creature. But the cagey Prince of Darkness catches the Kryptonian's gaze and begins to hypnotize him. The prepared Man of Tomorrow pulls the balloon from his cape pouch and with super pressure and heat vision creates a miniature sun thanks to the hydrogen in the balloon. What? What? <laughs> we'll get to that. Hold what? on. Uh. The explosive sun works his plan, and Dracula is stunned, but not out. Then, from out of nowhere, literally nowhere, the Phantom Stranger appears. With one swoop of his cape, he transports the monsters back to the realm of nightmare they escaped from. Before Superman can introduce him to Lois and Cassandra, the Stranger is gone once again, leaving Superman, Lois, and Cassandra to bask in the glow of the rising sun. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, but this comic made my head hurt, and I mean, I don't need super logic. I just need the common sense of a four-year-old. <laughs> I mean, come on, people. I mean, Jiminy Crickets. <laughs> yeah, well, I tell you, I read, I picked this comic up at a comic convention a year or two ago. I think Lexington Comic Con, not this year, but last year. And I saw it, I'm like, oh, man, Dracula Frankenstein. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. I gotta buy this. I, had, I didn't have it, even though I was buying Superman or my, having Superman comics bought for me at this time. I missed out on this one. Um, I didn't read it until we start st decided to do this series, and uh, boy, <laughs> was I quite surprised by this one. So let's we'll get we'll go through our notes here. Uh, first off, the cover is awesome. It's just. Fantastic. Superman looks absolutely terrified as Frankenstein holds him and turns his head ready for the floating Dracula to take a bite. So it's by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be a name. Of course it's awesome, but I mean, it's it's just great. Dracula looks a little pink. The coloring's a little, you know, he's like been going to the tanning bed, you know, maybe, you know. Mm. But, but other than that, it's great. The opening splash is nice. You know, you got Swan demonstrating Superman taking on a lightning bolt. Getting it to the chest. I mean, that's always good. When Clark gets to the castle, we're introduced to Miss Mark McCardle. Sorry. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mr. Laurie and Mr. Greenway and Cassandra Kraft. You, now, you would assume that all of these characters would be very important to the story. And that's where you'd be wrong. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> they give you no backstory. Or, I mean, I, what? <laughs> well, we'll get to that. I keep saying that. I did like the bit where Cassandra, she touches Clark's hand for the seance, and she she says she sensed an inner strength in him, which was a nice touch. Yeah, but if she's a true medium, then she just says, oh, she should have thought to herself, this is Superman, but I'll keep his secret, because I, you know, I know these things. Not just, I sense an inner strength, my son. <laughs> Ugh. I'm going to make catty comments. You just steal. Oh, no, that's, you, you, you're not going to get any arguments from me. Um. Well, for one, I am a huge fan of Kurt Swan, and I often defend him from others who say his work is bland and not dynamic, including 
our our pal Rob Kelly. And sorry to call you out, Rob, but you know I do. But <laughs> but I, I really can't defend him too much on this one. It, it's it's the the panels where Cassandra is in contact with Brolin and then faints. They're they're pretty weak. I mean, for such a dramatic moment, I mean, you just really don't get that it's painful that it's horrible. It's just kind of like close-ups of her face and and uh, and Frank. Cheramonte's inking. I, I never was a big fan of it on Swan. Uh, I don't even know of, of him inking too many other artists. That's, he inked a lot of Superman comics over Swan at this time, and I always just thought his his work didn't really fit Swan, especially when you see Kirk Swan's pencils. are very illustrative. Uh, they're very feathered, very uh, textured, uh, very shade. There's a lot of shading, like pencil shading in his, his artwork. So for somebody to just, like, chisel a bunch of, you know, really stiff lines around it. It just, like, sucks all the life out of it. So I don't think he's doing him any favors either. But this is definitely not Kurt Swan's finest hour. The Frankenstein monster looks a bit like Peter Boyle's creature from Young Frankenstein, just with longer hair, which we brought, of course, we brought him up earlier. I have not seen the Louis Jordan uh, Dracula that the BBC did, but I know, obviously, what Louis Jordan looks like. And I can't help but think in a couple panels, Dracula looks a bit like him. Maybe that's just a stretch, but he that was a recent version of Dracula. I think it had just maybe aired a year or so before. So Swan might have referenced that. Yeah, I assume the rest of the characters introduced would stick around. Maybe one or two of them become a victim of Dracula, you know, as he goes through. And, you know, he bites one of them and they don't know it and they're under his control or something. No, they just, the three of them... Just get up and leave. I mean, and and uh, yeah, they're just gone. There's no, almost no point of them even being in the story. So, uh, Super Dickery, <laughs> which is a website and everybody knows. Clark actually, you know, he sees with his X-ray vision, or telescopic and X-ray vision, that the monsters, you know, wreaking havoc in downtown Metropolis. And he first he says, oh, Mr. Edge, can I leave? I, I feel a bit claustrophobic. And Edge is like, oh, can't you guys stay here? Blah, blah, blah. And, something, you know. and so what's he do? He sucks the oxygen out of the room yeah. with the super breath. I mean, not all of it, obviously, because he didn't want to kill anybody. But, I mean, you know, so he can go off and fight the monster, which I know that's important. But let's think about this. You know, what if somebody had asthma or emphysema? Yeah. You know, speaking as somebody that has asthma, yeah. not a nice thing. And how would you? I've always wondered how would you not notice him sucking in that hard? I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, think about Christopher Reeve when he did the the cool part in Superman two when he's blowing the freezing the the tank on the truck that Zod's zapping with his. You know, he hit it with his heat vision and he uses the mirror and he does that really cool. <gasps> when he done it, like sucks back in and it's like, I mean, that to me, that's how super breath has to work. So how the hell do you, like, suck the air out of the room and not have people notice it? I know that's a bridge too far, but, um, you know, whatever. So Frankenstein's monster is actually shown eating cakes out of some food delivery truck. You think they're hostess cakes? That's another thing I want to mention about this comic. It's a very small comic, but there are, oh my gosh, so many ads that are just dispersed just randomly. I mean... It's just like, oh, here's another ad. Oh, here's another ad. Welcome to the 70s. Well, what I'm saying, though, is if this story wasn't hard enough to follow, it's just like, here's that. Here's that. I'm like, what? 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 There are some good ads in it, though. And in fact, there's, I think there's a Hawkman hostess ad. There is a Hawkman hostess ad. And it's drawn by Kurt Swansley for, you know, as hell, the Phantom Stranger showed up for one page. Maybe Hawkman showed up for one page. You know, maybe he's in the story. But, you know, I actually think there's some hostess ads that are better stories than this. I'm just saying. I don't know. Uh, so Superman picks up a balloon. Now remember this, kids. And I have a really good logic point about this when we get to it. This is important. Okay. Uh, then, you know, the fight. Superman goes back to the castle. The monsters show up. Which, this is... If the monsters show up right at... As nightfall hits, then, man, that's... They had one hell of a long fight. <laughs> because at the end, the sun comes up. But anyway... So, given the monster's historic fear of fire, you'd think they'd play that up when Superman roasts him with the Yeah, and then it's just over. It's just one panel. Yeah, he's like, he's like, and then he, boom, uppercut and punches him out, you know. So, the balloon. So, Julius Schwartz's super science saves us from being plagued by a super Dracula. And I can't decide if his balloon trick is clever or just plain nuts. 
it's it's kind of super frenzy, you know. Here's the problem with that. What? He talks about it being a hydrogen-filled balloon. Yeah. It's a helium balloon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a helium balloon. It's well, floating. Well, I, I looked and, and actually, and I didn't dig a whole lot into it, but apparently he, helium, I'm not a science guy, hydrogen and helium are very close. And there are hydrogen balloons, but you're common, you're right, your common balloon that your kid will be playing with is a helium balloon, not a hydrogen balloon. Exactly. And he gets it from the park. It's a helium balloon, which magically turns hydrogen, which he can magically smoosh together. To, uh, the the whole logic truck, this is a logic train, dude. <laughs> and it derailed. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, as, as crazy as that part was, it's not as crazy as you turn the page and the Phantom Stranger just appears out of nowhere, which I know the Phantom Stranger does appear out of nowhere. That's his thing. But nowhere in this story did you expect the Phantom Stranger to just pop up, swoop his cape around him, and then take him away with him. I mean, there, that was... I mean, that's just... When I read this page, and I saw you do it too when you were reading it, I literally went back and said, is the Phantom Stranger in here earlier? Did I miss him? I thought I missed a page. <laughs> I did too. I was like, what, what, what did I miss here? And and apparently, you know, Roland, the mystic, was keeping Dracula and Frankenstein's monster in this nightmare dimension. So, why not... I've never... You know, there's no mention of this Roland ever before. Why would he suddenly be a great mystic that would guard this portal. I mean, there's no backstory given on this heroic character. And, you know, Cassandra's last line made no sense at all to me when I read it. It says, I've, I've learned to settle for the warmth of the sunrise without waiting for the return of someone I once met and lost in a dream. I mean, it's like, who is she talking about? And I was sitting there scratching my head thinking, God, this, I've got to be missing something. This, this is Paul Levitz and Lynn Wein. They're great writers. They they couldn't have just thrown together something like this. And Julia Schwartz, one of the greatest comic book editors who ever lived. I mean, he freaking started the Silver Age of comics. How did they let something like this come out? And and I got something made me think. Well, maybe, just maybe, some of these characters were in the old Phantom Stranger title. And luckily, our again our pal Rob Kelly had a blog. I am the Phantom Stranger. .blogspot.com and so I went rummaging through that site which I used to follow when it, you know Rob hasn't updated it in a long time and uh, he had Rob had post of every issue of that and so I found out that uh, Cassandra Craft was a character in the Phantom Strangers comic she debuted in issue number 17 written by Lynn Wein uh, she appeared several times over the next few issues, and she even became his love interest until they broke up. She reappeared in the last two issues of the title, which were written by Paul Levitz. And, you know, that's all well and good, but as someone who never read those stories, I had no idea that Cassandra was a pre-existing character and had no idea she was connected to the Phantom Stranger. So when he showed up, it made absolutely no sense and seemed to be a total just, you know... Deus, day ex machina. Well, apparently she, in, you know, makes warm fuzzies come out of everybody because on page eight, Superman's talking to her and he's like, I'll make sure nothing happens to you, Cass. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. They just met. Her name's Cassandra, but apparently Superman, who's supposed to be Mr. Proper and, you know, I, you know, I use my good manners. I'm going to shorten your name, baby doll. It's not Cassandra. It's Cass, baby. And he's hitting on her right in front of Lois. I know. More super dickery. I I'm mean, sorry. He's mentally tortured that woman for years, not only with the secret identity, but in all the ways he tried to keep her from finding it out or convince her she was wrong about it. I mean, she should be in the nut house. And then he's hitting on this woman right in front of her. I know. <laughs> and I mean, I, I'm sorry. That's something that stuck out to me. Here, here's Mr. Proper. I have good manners, Superman. But I'm here, Cass, baby. I'll take care of you. She was rather fetching in that pink, you know, low-cut top and the bell bottoms with the belt, you know. So maybe that's a little. <laughs> now, what really kills me is Julia Schwartz was one of the, was always famous for putting notes, flashbacks. Uh, this happened in JLA number 75, you know. I mean, notes in his comics. Right, to Where explain Where are this. they here? Why aren't they 
see Phantom Stranger number whatever issue I said that was number 17 you know uh, why didn't Superman go Cassandra Craft I know about her from you know the you know I, she's had encounters with the Phantom Stranger right you or know something. that's usually you get some word balloon or something like that you didn't get nothing I mean these could have been I mean these these characters felt like characters that are the Superman books are filled. I mean, lots of books in the 70s where comics were just like that back then. They were all often filled with characters that just appeared in that one issue and that one issue only. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like, you know, a TV show that had a cast and then you'd have the guest cast that was different every week, like Gunsmoke or something, you know, something like that. Uh, and in fact, that's when, you know, I've heard people, including myself, you know, defend Superman 3 to a point because... The nobody, no name characters often become the most important characters in an individual issue of a Bronze Age Superman comic. Right. So you know you get the feeling that these are those type of characters, but you think they're going to go somewhere with it, and you're going to use those other three characters you meet at the castle. They leave, and then Cassandra's left. You know, but you without them telling you that she is connected to the Phantom Stranger. Then you're just like, okay, what is the deal with this woman? I almost wonder if they weren't planning on this book being like maybe a 64-page special or something like that. It just seems like there's too many plot points that are missing that they bared it down. They stripped it down to the very bare bones, and it just didn't translate well. It just seems like there's too many much missing. Either that or this was the first story in an arc i mean they didn't do that they didn't do really do arcs back then but like a subplot that would build like you see cassandra in the book again you would hear more about roland and you'd find out more i looked to see if any of these other characters popped up again in the phantom strangers book um and that I, I couldn't find them in you know just researching it now they may have and maybe this did get picked up uh, in later issues, I don't think it did. If it did, listeners write in and tell us. Uh, but either way, the way this is presented as a one comic, it seems like it's a done in one and not done well. It, exactly, and in, in this era, it's very surprising that they didn't tell you how this connected to the past. I mean, it, it's really. I mean, comics were footnote heavy. Mm -hmm. Back then, I mean, especially DC comics. A lot of times, Marvel would be, you know, kind of flipping about. It. It's like, yeah, they met a long time ago, but we're not going to tell you where. Readers, find out for yourself or something. You know, I mean, it's. But DC would tell you, no, they met, and you know. I mean, even if it just said, you know, not even a big word balloon, but even if it had just said, "See Phantom Stranger number 17. Yeah, I know. The only thing I can think of, maybe they did not want to telegraph his appearance at the end, but. They needed to, in a way, because the fact that he just shows up. I mean, like we said, he he shows up, usually when he shows up in other stories, he shows up once before, or he'll tell, like, he'll tell the Justice League about this, this crisis, and then he'll show up at the end and help them, or, mm -hmm. you know, he showed up in, you know, the the Alan Brenner story, the To Kill a Legend, Detective 500, which we covered with Rob, and... You know, he, he shows up at the beginning. He takes Batman and Robin to the parallel world and he shows up at the end to get him. I mean, that's fine. That's his shtick. But him showing up here is just like, okay, we need to end the issue so the Phantom Stranger's showing up. Yeah. You know. But I understand now that his connection to Cassandra made sense. I mean, even if he even if he said a line that said something like, I will, you know, I, you know I'm here to, you know, I, I look out for those I care about and and maybe Superman would think, well, you know, I know we're, he's kind of in the Justice League, but I didn't think we were that big of buddies. And then Cassandra's like, oh, no, it's me. You know, me and him used to have a thing, you know, or something <laughs> like You know, I mean. There had to be some better way to. Convey that yes. connection without ruining it. But it, it it's, it's you know, as much as I enjoy the well, I mean, why couldn't I even said and say that stupid crap about Maddie once in a dream? I'm sorry. That's just too bleh. You know, even I have her think to herself, I still miss him every day, even though we can't be together. Right. The so, end. Yeah, right. I mean, that, that would take care that of That would have helped. I mean, as much as I enjoyed the works of Levitt, Sween, and Swan, this was not their best effort. It's a big letdown after that awesome cover. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it filled our monster criteria, and I almost didn't cover it, but it's just so zany. 
that I just, I couldn't help myself. I had to. I had to. <laughs> I mean. I'm sorry I tortured you with. <laughs> yeah, I had to. I mean, you, you got to think about these things. You know, we decide on topics together, but sometimes the stuff that you come up with that you make me read is just mean. <laughs> I mean, you got to buy me something pretty after that. <laughs> Well, I think that's going to cover it uh, for for this episode. Uh, Now, next time, we're going to jump from Universal to their successors at Hammer. And uh, we're going to cover one of my favorite Hammer films. And that is their first Dracula movie, The Horror of Dracula. It introduces Christopher Lee as Dracula and Peter Cushing as Van Helsing. I love that movie. This is going to be a lot of fun. And we're also going to have a comic and I won't ruin it too much, but I will say that it ties into the movie that we're discussing in a very cool and somewhat unexpected way. Hmm. So come back next time, and uh, if you got any comments on this on this episode, drop us a line at supermatespodcast at gmail.com, or leave a comment on our blog page, that's uh, supermancomic.blogspot.com, uh, and... Uh, you know, if you feel froggy and want to leave us a review on iTunes, that'd be great. And hydrogen is not helium, and helium is not hydrogen. <laughs> Just had to put that final logic train on there. Well, and I mean, how could he put that much pressure on a balloon without just popping it? Uh-huh. I mean, this, this, I don't know, but yes, it's kind of like in the Super Friends episode when he made, he took the, the excessive nitrogen in my super freeze breath and my heat vision may be able to make this water into kryptonic acid and eat through these kryptonite chains. I mean, it's that's why it's, it's super friends logic. It's like, okay, if you say that out loud, it almost works. <laughs> but when you read it and you're like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> the same people that gave you a talking Scooby-Doo. <laughs> there was some token going on, my friends. Well, with that, let's say goodnight. <laughs> good night. Good night. Good night. <laughs> Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises worldwide. The fictional characters and events mentioned in this show are trademark and copyright their respective owners. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their owners, and we mean no infringement by either. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. That should be really interesting.